Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Christian Church, we're just so glad that you're with us. I want to say hello to everyone here in the auditorium. You always get the little extras while everybody at church at home is watching the bump. You get to see my new dance moves I've been practicing. So that's a special treat when you come to live. But uh, we want to say to all of you at church at home, 80% of our community of faith right now is doing church at home. And we're just so glad that you are joining us. We are currently studying uh, Joseph and his life in the book of Genesis, chapter 37 through 45. And it's all about change. This series is called The New Normal, and that is how in the world do I adjust to all of the change in my life? And the story of Joseph is really about change and an immense amount of change in the process. Now, uh, we have had a lot of change going on, and our principle that we've applied throughout this entire series is this, and that is my attitude towards change impacts how much change affects me. Now, whenever we go through change, we're really affected, and we can be affected in a lot of different ways. But if you take a moment and you step back and you evaluate how you deal with change, it can be immensely helpful. And boy, you need it right now. Just think about all the school changes going on right now. I mean, it's crazy because it just seems like nobody really knows what we're going to do, how it's going to look. I've got uh, a lot of people just within our community of faith who are like, I don't know how my elementary age school children are going to do church uh, or school online or virtually or what? Am I homeschooling? What am I doing? I see all kinds of memes on the internet, you know, about that first day of homeschooling for parents. The kids got expelled and the teacher got uh, fired for yelling at the students, you know, kind of a thing. So, I mean, that's an inordinate amount of change and it is totally disrupting families like never before. Look, think about going to college. Last weekend, I just helped my daughter and her new husband move into their place. He's starting a PhD program. She has a new job there in Madison, Wisconsin. So Madison, Wisconsin, the Midwest. I always love going to the Midwest in the summertime because I call it air you can wear. It is so humid. So I was there helping them move in. It was really interesting because all of these students came swarming back into the University of Wisconsin. And in early in uh, August, in the end of July, they were like, yeah, we're going to have classes. We're going to do all that. But then when all these students showed up in the university, they said, well, actually, we're going to go to all online because the numbers aren't where we want them. And this has happened from university to university to university. So you move to the university campus, and then suddenly it's uh, all schools online. Then you think, well, like here in town, Micron in the state of Idaho is a electronics or technology company, and they've always had this culture where everybody was on campus. It was a very on-campus type of culture. Well, when COVID hit, guess what? Everybody went home to work. So what a massive cultural change at Micron. But that all of these changes pair in comparison to the whole issue is if you're single and you're trying to date, 
in this age. Talk about change. I mean, how can you even meet anybody when they're, t- they're wearing all these clothes? They get hats, they get goggles, they got a mask on. I saw this guy with a mask and a hat, and he's walking around with a T-shirt that said, blink if you like me. I'm like, my goodness, dating must just be brutal right now. I mean, that's sad. I feel bad for everybody. But is this a new normal? I don't know. But I do know this. The way we face change like this, these disruptions, make a huge difference on what kind of people we become through them and what kind of people we are after them. So let's jump into our story of Joseph in chapter 41, and let's begin to look at what's going on in his life. And if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, it starts in chapter 37. He is the son, 11th son of 12 boys. His brothers are really unhappy with him. So when he goes out to see them, they beat him up and they sell him to a bunch of uh, Ishmaelites as they are traveling down to Egypt. They sell him into slavery into the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. At this time in human history, Egypt is one of the most powerful nations and empires in the world at that time. And so what happens is he is a slave in Potiphar's house, but he works really, really hard. And then what he does is he becomes over managing all of Potiphar's house. So as he gets older, he's about 20 years old now, is that Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him and she tries to seduce him. He says no, she doesn't like that, so she falsely accuses him of rape. And so Potiphar sends him to prison. He's been in prison now for almost 10 years, waiting. It's like, what misery of my life. And while he's in prison, two officials come from Pharaoh, a cupbearer and a baker, and they have dreams. He interprets their dreams, and what happened comes true. And the only person that could overrule Potiphar, who's more powerful than Potiphar, is Pharaoh himself. So he says to the cupbearer, please remember me when you go see Pharaoh, plead my case. Well, let's see what happens, okay? Two full years go by. I think the cupbearer forgot. Two full years pass. Guess what? Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, and when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile, stood beside those on the riverbank, and the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. Oh, my goodness. So then he falls back to sleep, and guess what? He has a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. So Pharaoh has two dreams. Seven sleek and fat cows that get eaten by five, or seven skinny cows. One stalk with seven healthy heads, followed by seven scorched heads that eat them up. So let's see what happens once he hears about these dreams. Now, in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer says to Pharaoh, now we get a clue as to why the cupbearer never brought it up. Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. 
You know, he doesn't want to tell his boss who could have executed him, you remember that time I made you really, really mad? <laughs> so he doesn't want to remind him, but he says, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Look at what happened. Each of us had a dream that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And the things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. Wow, now look what happens. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. So now you know where's Joseph been languishing for the last nine to 10 years of his life, in the prison, the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, so this tells us he was probably pretty you know, rough looking, but they clean him up so he looks presentable to Pharaoh he comes before Pharaoh. Now, just think what's going through his mind at this moment. He's like, Potiphar, the captain of the guard, one of the most powerful people in all of Egypt, has kept me in prison all of these years. And the only person that can really overrule Potiphar, who's so powerful, is Pharaoh himself. And now, finally, I am being brought before Potiphar. Wow, what an amazing opportunity. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Notice what he says. I'm here. I have the power to overrule Potiphar. Here's your one opportunity and I know you have the power to do it. Notice what he says. In verse 16, I cannot. Wow, what a change in his heart. He says, I don't have this power, but God does. God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What an amazing thing. So if you look what happens next, as the next slide pulls up, is that we see him telling the dreams that he had to Joseph, and then Joseph interprets the dreams. And he basically says, look, the seven skin, uh, fat cows are seven years of plenty, and he says the seven skinny cows that come and eat the fat cows are famine. But the famine's gonna be so bad, it's gonna wipe out all the productivity of the prior seven years. It's the same thing with the second dream. And the fact that you had two dreams, but two different ways, says God is going to do it specifically, and he's going to start right now. So once Joseph interprets, look at verse 33 and see what happens next. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man. So he interprets the dream, and now he's giving counsel to Pharaoh. What confidence this young man has. 
He puts them in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners under this person over the land to take a fifth of the harvest. So he's even telling them, look, if you take a fifth of the harvest, there'll still be plenty, but that'll be enough to get us through the lean years. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. So notice how he's giving him counsel and he's sharing with him not just an idea, but actual specifics on how to manage this crisis. So let's move on and see what happens next. And this has to do with Pharaoh's elevation of Joseph, okay? Now, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. Notice this word, good to Pharaoh and to who? All of his officials. What is one of the top officials for Pharaoh in his court? It's Potiphar, the captain of his guard. Isn't this interesting? So Pharaoh asks them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Now notice what he does. So so Pharaoh then says to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's finger. And he dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then look what happens next. So in verse, uh, said, oh, excuse me, verse, that is 46. Okay, I just want to make sure I was there. Now, what I want to show you real quick is what he gave him, okay? Here's a picture of a signet ring that is designed. This comes from like the second or third century prior to the birth of Christ. So it was anywhere from 300 to 800 BC. So it's very similar to the signet ring that Pharaoh would have had at the same time. And on it is a bunch of written uh, text. This is their form of writing. And what the signet ring was is that whenever the Pharaoh would write out a decree or a law or regulation, he would then pour wax on it. He would take his signet ring off and then he would push it down into the wax. And that's how every other commissioner, every other governor, every other military commander knew exactly that this was an order or a command or an instruction from Pharaoh himself. He gave this ring to Joseph. That's a lot of power. The second thing he did is this, is he put a golden collar around him. This is not a wrapper gold chain we're talking about here. You know what this is? This thing was probably eight inches thick. And every row that you had, the more rows that you had on this golden collar showed your position in society. You're not getting any more 
higher than this. This is an actual Egyptian gold chain that hung very similar. We don't know the exact one at all, but this is very similar to one that many of the pharaohs wore. Isn't that amazing? Then what he did is he gave him the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am but without your word. No one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath Paniah, which in Egyptian means knows the mysteries of God. He says, and gave him Aseneth, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember when he was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout all of Egypt. So he went from an imprisoned slave to now one of the most powerful men of Egypt. He had a golden chain around or collar around him. He had the signet ring of Pharaoh himself. He was married to the priest's daughter. And so now he was ensconced in the highest echelons of the greatest empire in human history at this time. So what happens? Well, let's look at verse 53 and see. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. The seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. So Joseph is proven right. What a powerful story of massive change. Not only is Egypt facing fruitfulness and then famine, not, he goes from servant, slave, to imprisoned slave, to ruler. All of these things are happening. Now, in this particular chapter, I want to share with you three principles that impacted Joseph's attitude towards the changes he was facing, okay? The first one is this, and that is Joseph led with faith. He always leads with faith, which was so different than when he first started. Now, when he first started as a young man and he had dreams, he shared them without being asked, and then he interpreted them of his own accord and designed to set him up and make himself look good. But this made his brothers despise him even more. Now, you see, Pastor Harv talked about his heart change last week. I encourage you to go back if you didn't hear his message on this. But you see this massive change in his heart. What happens is no longer is he doing what he's doing for himself, but he is saying, I'm putting my complete faith and trust in God. Verse 16, I can't do it, Pharaoh, but God can. And he said this before he even knew what the dream was. My friends, whenever you face any change in your life, no matter how big or how small, you should always lead with faith. You should start with the person I trust in this situation more than anybody else is God. God must be first. You know what's really interesting is change is the opportunity. 
whether it be huge or small, to discover what you actually trust. I don't know about you, but when all this started back in March, you know, the first thing, you know, they were saying is like, oh my goodness, is the kids have to go home and they have to do school at home. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm educated. My wife's educated. Uh, my last child is at home. I think I can handle this. You know, we're going to be okay. We, we can deal with all of this kind of stuff. You may not know, I had two children, my two older children, decide in a gracious and loving manner, considering the needs of their parents, to both get married 13 days apart in the midst of COVID. So my middle child, my daughter, gets married like on the 26th or 27th of June, and then my older son gets married on like the 10th of July. So it's like 13 days apart. It's like, sure, Dad, no problem. You can handle it. I did. I survived. We got through that. And then we had all this transition in the church going on. All of these things that were happening in the life of our people and having to deal with this, trying to be there for people and, and care for people and let people continue to grow in their faith, make a massive shift from uh, event-oriented type things to all online. So it was a huge pivot for us. I, I was pivoting so much, uh, both of my hips got dislocated. That is a joke, by the way. But I was like, I can handle that. I can handle a dislocated hip. I can handle it. And then there, you know, we went through this, we went through this, and then something happened. And that is, this one was a little tough for me to swallow. And that is, I went to Home Depot, you know, and I don't know if you know, but whenever uh, the Home Depot opened, I just kind of went and walked the aisles so I could memorize where everything is. Because I think I go to Home Depot more than I go to the grocery store. Love Home Depot. Very close. So I get there, and you know what? You couldn't get into Home Depot unless you stood in a line and wore a mask, and you had to wait. That was a tough pill for me to swallow. That was hard. Just lost my liberty. I can't go into Home Depot whenever I want. But then I'll tell you something. There is a change that happened that I had to fight despair like I've never had to fight before. And that was when they made the announcement that there would be no Boise State football this fall. Oh, stab me in the heart. That was so hard. But I survived. Now all seriousness, in all seriousness, when you face a change and things come down the pike, that's your opportunity to discover what you actually trust. I had the opportunity to discover that football is not life, even though I have said that before. Only God and God alone is life. And when I put my absolute and unequivocal faith in him, he is the one, he is the one who will sustain me. He is my source. And the scriptures are true. There's nothing in this world that can take the place of God and God alone. So whatever, whatever change you're facing, always lead with faith. Choose faith first. Now, the second one is this, and that is Joseph counsels based on competency. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when he starts to give uh, Pharaoh instructions about what to do, he wasn't making stuff up in his head. He had 13 years of education. It started in Potiphar's house, right? And that is, he learned how to manage Potiphar's house. 
because Potiphar was so high up, so wealthy, so powerful, is probably a very large estate, hundreds and hundreds of employees, all different kinds of things that had to happen to make it successful. He became in charge of all of it. Then after he was falsely accused, he went to prison. And what happened while he was in prison? It says that the warden entrusted him the running of the entire prison without anything other than him being in charge. He didn't worry about it. He said, everything is in your charge, in your responsibility. That is 13 years of skill development. And so when he then instructs or counsels Pharaoh on what to do, He's doing it out of a learned skill. Now, why is that so significant? Well, let me tell you why. He learned that skill from Potiphar and while he was in prison, the warden, the two people that were oppressing him the most. The two people that were oppressing him the most. You know what happens with most people when bad things happen? When there's a change that they don't like? or something that they can't deal with. You know what most people do? Most people, when things go bad, spend their time feeling sorry for themselves. Why me? It's not fair. This isn't right. Now, those are real feelings and real emotions, but I want to say something, and that is this. Think about it. Self-pity always destroys yourself. It always does. Self-pity destroys itself. Self-pity doesn't help you glean, grow, grab a hold of anything that could come into your wheelhouse, into your skill set, if you're stuck in self-pity. When you're stuck in self-pity, you can't learn. You can't grow. You can't expand. You can't sharpen. When we started this series, we said what happens in most people's lives when massive change happens is they're like a turtle. They kind of draw back into their shell and wait for the storm to pass. But that passivity will not pay off in the long run. We need to learn how to be strong and courageous people. We need to step out and lead by faith and even in the midst of great difficulty, discover competent skills. You might learn how to be the best PE coach for your kids that you've ever imagined. You could learn how to teach math in English and prepare them for skills in life. You can learn new ways about yourself to be more productive. You can learn new skills, new ways of how to do a job or in a new industry. How can you do all this? Because you lead with faith and you're learning in the midst of your struggle and your difficulty that even then I can exercise faith and I can grow. Now, the last one is this. It has to do with Joseph following through on what he said he would do. This is very important. Not only did he say, I have skills to do this, but now I want the responsibility. I want to follow through. My friends, right here and right now, you have a decision that you can make in your own life. And that is, regardless of what happens, regardless of the changes that I have to face, God is in control and I'm in charge. God is in control and I can make decisions about my life to follow him and step out in faith. 
this stuff that's going on is not going to ruin me. It's not going to destroy me. It's not going to depress me. It's not going to bind me. It's not going to control me. I'm going to step out in faith, and I am going to follow through on whatever opportunity and door that is opened up by God himself when I lead and step out in faith. Never forget the parable of the sower in the New Testament that Jesus tells. He says that there was a man who took seed, the sower, and he goes out and he casts it out. Some falls on the rocky path, some falls in the rocky soil, weedy soil, and some falls into the good soil. And then he talks about the outcomes of where this seed fell and what types of soil. A great parable. But don't forget, if the sower never went out to sow, there wouldn't have been any seed to fall anywhere. James said, you say you have faith and you don't do anything, but I will prove my faith by what I do. You need to prove your trust in God to yourself by stepping specifically towards a new opportunity that God has for you. Andy Stanley talks about this in what he calls the principle of the past. He says, it doesn't matter what you dream about. It doesn't matter what you hope for. It's the actual step that you take for the destination you make. So you can dream about something all day long, but if you don't take a step towards it, guess what? You're never going to get there. Teddy Roosevelt said, do what you can where you're at with what you have. Don't allow self-pity, as it could have easily been in the heart of Joseph, drive your life because it demotivates you. Self-pity is demotivating, whereas faith is instigating. Faith is a belief that no matter how bad things get, God is on your side, which leads me for your final takeaway today. I just want to talk about how in everything else, it's a simple statement, but it's so true in that God is the source of all things. That's what it means to leave in faith, counsel with competency, follow through. You can do these things only if God is your source. If you're your own source, guess what? You're going to struggle. If the systems around you are your source of motivation, you're going to struggle. If the institutions around you are what's going to improve your productivity or your education or whatever, they're going to disappoint you. Fame, materialism, all of these things will fail you, but God will never fail you because God is the source. Notice the security and confidence in Joseph's voice. When he was facing the one person that could remove him from prison, and when that person says, can you do what I want? He says, no, I can't, but God can. Instead of taking the credit for himself, he gives it to God and God alone. Why? Because God was his source. Think about 450 years later when Joshua is leading the massive nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery across the Negev Desert, the Sinai Peninsula, and they're getting ready to go in and possess the promised land. And the Lord speaks to Joseph in the first chapter verse 9, where he says, I have commanded you, be strong, be courageous, 
Do not despair, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. My friends, God is your source. Do not despair. Be strong. Be courageous. Step out in confidence. No matter how good or bad things are, God is your source. People right now, with all this change, are learning that the things they put their trust in are insufficient. All of the institutions are insufficient. All the success is insufficient. Where will they find strength? Where will they be able to push through the sense of despair and find hope? When God is your source. Only when people discover what Joseph discovered, that God is my source, will they find fullness throughout all of this COVID conundrum. The last thing I wanted to share with you is this. And someone might be saying, Pastor, I get that you want to encourage us to be strong. I, I get that the Bible tells us to be confident in the Lord. But you don't know my life right now. You don't know. It's an absolute disaster. I mean, it really is. It is so messed up. I don't know what to do. Well, remember, God is your source. And that means that God is the only source for healing our brokenness. There's nothing that you can turn to in this world that's going to heal your brokenness. When things get really bad and your life is upside down, there's nothing that's going to heal it other than God and God alone. In verse 51, Joseph says something really interesting, and that is, because he married the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, he bore two children. And in verse 51, he says, he named his firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh becomes one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the name means something. He says, it is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and my father's household. So his firstborn child was named Manasseh because God had healed his brokenness. And here we see a major reason why God must be our only source, because only God can heal our emptiness. Only God can heal our brokenness. Only God can heal our blindness and give us eternal hope. So today, my friends, I challenge you, if you're watching online, if you're in the auditorium here on main campus, if you're watching this at a later hour of today or this week, choose God and choose him now. Act today. Stop just thinking about it and wondering about it. Take that step closer to Jesus. He's one step away. Take that step today. Let's let Rachel tell us how. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.